Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. We are live at the Real Capital Conference. This is part of our forum series where we'll be traveling around to many of the forums this year and doing live podcasts. Our guest today is Matthew Spoke. He's the founder of Aeon Network. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you. Good to be here. So before we do anything, we're going to be talking about blockchain technology and the impact it has on or the potential future impact it will have in the commercial real estate industry and real estate in general. We've done this topic before. But we thought it needed a second go around only because of the complexity and, and it is an evolving, rapidly changing space. So we we recorded a previous episode that I think was probably about eight months ago. So you can go back. We don't have episode numbers because we don't number episodes, but his name is Abhishek Sinha. Sinha, yeah. Yeah, and we'll put a link in the show notes to if you want to just uh, track it that way. So if you haven't, if you have no familiarity with blockchain and real estate, I, I would recommend you can start, stop now, go back, come back and listen to this one too, but go back and listen to the Abhishek Sinha version first. And then we're going to try to kind of pick up at the same time, reiterate a lot of the same concepts because again, I, I think it's people's, for whatever reason, people need to hear these things seven or eight times oh, before course, they internalize yeah. it. So, <laughs> so, okay, on that note, let's just start with, again, and this is the same we went before, but let's just start with blockchain is not Bitcoin. And so can you just, just remove the two? How do you, and how do you do that? How do you explain that it's not one and the same? Yeah, I mean, it, you can get really deep into like a philosophical debate here, but I think the best, the best analogy that I've heard is, um, you know, investors that were around in the internet days, like the dot-com days in the late 90s, there was an era back then where, you know, general mainstream understanding was that email and internet were synonyms, one of the other, right? And it was a matter of, helping people understand that there's a greater context, that cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin included, are powered by this technology, but so could many other things be. And so separating these things, I think there was an aha moment, as crazy it sounds today, to think, wow, the internet is actually so much broader than the ability to send digital mail. That's kind of where we're at today, right? So we're, we're, you have a lot of people thinking about the use case as the technology when really this is a technology that will enable many use cases, cryptocurrencies being one of. So I think that we can maybe stop there without getting too technical. Sure. Do you want to spend a couple of seconds on cryptocurrency? Because Bitcoin, of course, has been you know widely publicized of being sure. you know lots of different things. But then there are there's a lot of other cryptocurrencies. Just so people have a concept that cryptocurrency yeah, I mean, is not just Bitcoin. And there's probably thousands of these Ethereum, things. Ethereum is I think the second largest. Ethereum and, being uh, the second largest. Yeah, I mean depending on the day that you track these things, there's there's a few thousand of these. Not all of them have value. I'd say you, you consider them a little microcosm of like, why would you want to hold US dollars versus Zimbabwe dollars? You know, you have more confidence in one and less in the other. It's very similar in cryptocurrencies. There are very well-used cryptocurrencies. Obviously, this is still a very niche market, but there are different cryptocurrencies designed with different monetary policies. So, you know, some designed to be deflationary, some designed to be very, very predictable in terms of their percentage of inflation every year, and lots of other nuances behind these designs. Over time, I think we'll see the market converge around a number of cryptocurrencies that are useful and a large number of cryptocurrencies that will disappear that will be irrelevant. And, you know, not again, not too different from a national fiat currency expiring over time because people stop using it because they lost confidence in it. So, you know, we we are a company that developed a cryptocurrency ourselves called Aon. A-I-O-N. A-I-O-N. Not, not the purpose of our chat today, but, you know, just the illustration that there are many companies of software engineers around the world kind of doing that same thing. 
And what would be, I mean, you said you want to talk about it, but what would be the point of the currency that you developed? Where do you see the main usage or uh, what's the plan? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think of blockchains as beyond being like financial payment systems, which is how a lot of people think about these things in the context of Bitcoin. These are, in our minds, global operating systems. So, you know, people think of operating systems in the context of their computers. You know, you run Microsoft Windows or you run iOS on your Apple phone, your iPhone. These are operating systems. Blockchains in the nature of what, that we're developing, like Aon and Ethereum is quite similar, are operating systems that exist on top of a network of computers. So the purpose of these operating systems is to build apps. And so these apps are, instead of being apps built on a computer or on, built on a phone, they're apps built on a network, meaning that they all share this common backbone that is the Aon blockchain or the Ethereum blockchain or whatever. The common thing that they have is that when you pay for access to this network, you're paying for it in the form of this cryptocurrency. So the cryptocurrency almost becomes a fuel to pay for the computing power that you're using. So, you know, if you're a software developer today and you go buy cloud computing from Google or Amazon, you pay them with a credit card once a month for the amount of cloud computing that you've used. Quite similarly, when you're using the Aon network, you're buying, call them Aon credits to use this computing system, but it's denominated in that native cryptocurrency. And so that's like the general premise. The apps you could build are theoretically anything. But we're building this as like a computing platform. First so, and so just keep them going down, focusing on Aon for now. So, do you would you have developers that want to have access to your network of computers so that they can practice or work on building different apps? Yeah. And that's really the business that you're running right now. Yeah. So, and in fact, I mean, Aon is a is a nonprofit R and D organization because of the technology that we develop. So, we're a group of software engineers primarily, but it's an open source technology, right? So, people using this, we don't monetize it. They don't pay us for access. They're paying the network participants. So, there's you know thousands, tens of thousands of computers around the world that are like connecting to the Aon network that are monetizing the little bit of computing power that they provide to the network. And that's what people are kind of, so it's a peer-to-peer market between the guy providing the computing power and the person building an app on top. But that's not the way it typically works. I mean, I think today, right now, when people think about Bitcoin, they see a million square foot warehouse in northern Quebec with just servers or computers jammed in every corner. Why is that? Why do people have that image in their brain? And what's the difference? Well, I mean, it's it's, uh, the efficiencies of scale. So you have to plug computers into the system. In theory, you could connect your personal laptop to the Bitcoin network, but you're just going to be very, very inefficient because it requires a certain amount of computing power and you can do that more efficiently at large scale. So what's happened with the Bitcoin network is that over time you've had a lot of concentration of what we call mining power, these computers, you know, where you can get cheaper cost of electricity and cheaper cost of rent. And, you know, you can buy bulk volumes of these computing chips, so they become cheaper per unit. And that makes the economics make more sense. So, you know, the market has kind of like gone in that direction for, you know, simple economic reasons. So as I mentioned, we are at the Real Capital Conference right now, and we just watched uh, Matthew on his panel. You mentioned that JP Morgan's gotten into the space as well. What do you think about sponsorship at that level? Does it add stability? Does it add uh, encouragement for people to jump? Yeah, and, to- and, for, and for content, we had, we had Abhishek Sinha on, and he's Ernst & Young. So there yeah, are clearly course. some large, multi-global, multinational, global institutions that are working on this. Yeah. Multi-global is next century. Multi-global, yeah. <laughs> Multi-universal, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the way I got started in this industry was at Deloitte. You know, I led their blockchain team for a number of years. So we've been close to the J.P. Morgan team that's working on this industry, on, on this space for quite a while. What's most notable recently, because there's been this separation in people's minds between like how large enterprises are going to use blockchain technology and how that might be separate and distinct from cryptocurrencies. What JP Morgan just announced recently is that they're actually in the process of building their own cryptocurrency, which was 
pretty eye-catching because of the fact that they're a large, global, regulated financial institution. Now, that's not a cryptocurrency so that I can go and you know, buy it with dollars and own it and then at some point be able to use it to go and buy my groceries. That's, it's, it's a different concept than currency, quote-unquote, in the way that we think of currency. Or is that truly they're just it's a competi- competitor to the dollar? Yeah, I mean the way the way that that they're developing it, and I think one of the big one of the big criticisms, and when it comes into like real businesses and real use cases, one of the big challenges with cryptocurrencies has been massive volatility. So it's very difficult to conduct commerce in a currency that changes value so aggressively on a daily basis. Where J.P. Morgan is kind of spending time, and where a couple of other projects have been trying to design new approaches is how do you build stable currency value into these systems? So you can have something that very closely reflects the value of a US dollar or the value of a Canadian dollar. So you can start designing digital transactions without the risk of that volatility. Because these are like the most extreme versions of foreign exchange markets where day-to-day you see fluctuations. You know, in some cases, a normal day might be 3 to 4%. An extreme day could be 50 to 60%. And so how are they doing it? Because I mean, part of the appeal or the, you know, in theory, the reason Bitcoin was created was because it was decentralized, but, you know, central banks will peg against the U.S. dollar to prevent from, you know, wildly fluctuating currency values. So how do you... Yeah, it's almost it's almost counterintuitive, right? You've got yeah. There's there's a lot of like haters <laughs> in the space that will point to that. I mean, there's a lot of philosophical arguments around. You know, there's this massive spectrum between you know the the challenges and limitations of relying on centralized institutions to solve all of these issues, and then the inefficiency, the technology's readiness for just pure decentralization. So somewhere in the middle lies some solutions that are not fully centralized, yet not fully decentralized. I think JP Morgan is somewhere on that spectrum. They're not loved by everybody in the cryptocurrency industry, but I think it's a good positive indication. I mean, I think the point is that institutional you know, support and endorsement for this technology can only be positive. Whether they get it right the first time or not, I mean, you look back 20, 30 years and try to think about what were the bank's first use cases of the internet, they were probably completely off the mark, but they were using it for something, right? And that was like a positive indication that the internet was important, that people should take this seriously. And then over time, they kind of flushed out these business models and they became a little bit more you know, relevant over time. Even though the original development of you know, Bitcoin was basically middle finger to the institutions. And, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a t-shirt yeah. that you can buy online that says long Bitcoin, short the banks. And it's a very, very popular t-shirt and, and in our industry. It, and you can buy it in Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's probably only <laughs> denominated in Bitcoin. <laughs> Do you in your personal life use cryptocurrency to transact in a, any way? I mean, yeah, the on-ramps are are not fully developed in this industry. So there's, it's limited in terms of what you can do. On-ramps meaning just places you can actually use. Yeah, people, places you can use it. And also, you know, the efficiency of like actually being able to pull out your cryptocurrency wallet and use it at a coffee shop. I mean, in fact, I do use the coffee shop right near my office, accepts a form of cryptocurrency called Buns. And I have not paid for coffee there in six months because I know the guys who developed buns and they gave me a bunch of free buns. So I go and I pull my phone out there because it saves me like four bucks every time I want an Americano or something. And so there's a couple of shops like that, but it's definitely not at that like large scale dissemination where it's like an easy alternative to your credit card by any means, at least not in North America. You see other markets where it's becoming a pretty suitable mainstream alternative, but we've got a pretty good financial system for all the complaints that we have they've ironed out a lot of the kinks. And so, you know, 
pulling out my debit card and tapping it is pretty simple. So sure, a, yeah, yeah, of course. And let's talk about while we're on the topic, the sort of the negative publicity that cryptocurrencies are continually getting. With you know, like the one I heard the other day was someone they lost a wallet or or had a wallet stolen, and all of a sudden it was fifty million dollars gone, and the guys vanished. And like, and you hear those yeah. stories kind of once a month of somebody manipulating or ripping off the system, right? Yeah, and I, I, how do you prevent against that, or is that just kind of nature of the evolution and the growth? And it's the nature of new technology. I mean, it's a stage in, of our growth that is that means that we have we have gone ahead of the understanding of regulators. We have gone ahead of the understanding of governments, and now they're playing catch up. And I think this is pretty natural for a lot of new new introductions of new technologies, where the rules that exist to kind of protect consumers and protect investors never contemplated a technology like this. So now it's like, how do the regulators kind of play catch up to make sure that we're thinking about these things? You're you're referring to Quadriga CX that's been all over the news in the last couple of weeks. You know, super unfortunate circumstance, very poorly managed company, obviously. And, you know, untimely. For for, for clarity, can you give a little commentary on the background of that story? I think this one where the the, the owner potentially faked his own death? Is this the one you're referring yeah, to? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of okay. conspiracy theories out there. I think the Globe and Mail has been doing some like investigative journalism on like trying to get to the bottom of is he actually dead or not? But yeah, this is a large Canadian cryptocurrency exchange that had a, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $250 million of customer deposits that really all traced back to a series of, call them passwords, and we call them private keys in the industry that were in the control of this guy, the founder, who then went on an untimely trip to India and died. Because of the amount of money, there's lots of speculation as to the authenticity of his death and things like that. But it's definitely these And these types private of, keys are gone with him being in, gone. Yeah, and Ernst & Young, I mean, is actually the one that's been nominated as, they're the ones kind of looking over the entire like research and unwinding of what happened. So there's a ton of analytic work being done right now to figure out like, you know, this company's been around since 2013. So it's a little bit like untangling a massive, you know, series of historical transactions to figure out like where has the money gone? So it's it's a mess for sure. And it's not great for the reputation of the industry by any means. But um, I think, you know, there continues to be enough positives in the industry to shine through situations like that. And when all fairness too, legacy systems have their own vulnerabilities and scams that come up as well. It just makes less headline news because it's not associated with cryptocurrency. Well, and absolutely. And I think what we do in normal markets is that we cover that risk with with insurance policies and, you know, and, and all sorts of fraud risk prevention and things like that. But, uh, you know, for all the chat around, you know, why cryptocurrencies are such an obvious tool for money launderers, which may be true, you know, money laundering continues to happen in the dollar, you know, very regularly. So it's not like one system to, is a To defend you, and I'll just, just to use the totally different example, if you have the title of CFO, you will get way more spam from frauds, fraudsters trying to get you to click on a link so that they yeah. can put a worm in your computer, which allows them to see passwords to the accounts that you have all your money. And so every year there are stories and it doesn't get the same kind of news as blockchain because it's not as sensationalized and the media doesn't gravitate towards yeah. it. But every year, banks are losing hundreds to billions of dollars from people getting access to CFO computers and finding out passwords and diverting money to, you know, offshore accounts and stuff. It happens all the time, but blockchain is fancy and, and yeah. kind of flashy. So it, it tends to get more attention. Exactly. <laughs> so cryptocurrency and, and real estate, where do you see them connecting in a meaningful way? I think there's a couple of areas where we're seeing some interesting use cases. You know, one specifically on cryptocurrencies, we'll see if this trend kind of continues, but we have seen the first examples of like full-blown real estate transactions happening in 
denominations like Bitcoin. I don't think it's happening at a scale that's all that notable yet. But the fact that it's kind of a feasible way to interact with the real estate market is pretty interesting. But more interestingly, in you know the, the trends that we're following have to do with the idea of cryptocurrencies being essentially like fractional representations of ownership that can be applied to things like real estate. So, you know, fractional ownership in real estate has been a long discussed topic that I think had a lot of barriers, you know, primarily being regulatory, but also a lot of technical barriers of how do you create a a mechanism to track ownership in small pieces of real estate all the way up to large pieces of real estate, and then a mechanism for that to trade on a liquid secondary market. In the same way that, you know, when, when, when the concept of stock markets came into existence for corporations, it, it transformed how capital formation happened, you know, in the corporate world. And I think there's still a lack of creativity around capital formation in the real estate markets where you're starting to see, you know, more and more use of, of instruments like REITs and, you know, corporate structures to hold real estate portfolios. But that has to happen at a massive scale to be feasible at a very, very like micro scale where, hey, I want to finance my house. My only option I have today is go to a bank and get a mortgage. In some markets, you're seeing peer-to-peer lending take mm-hmm. over the, where the banks used to provide financing. Or an even more interesting use case is how do I sell a fraction of ownership to my neighbor or to my friend in a way that is enforceable where they can start benefiting from 5% ownership in my house in the future or something and like that. Just, just back up a little bit. I mean, fractional ownership, is that the same thing as sort of tokenization? Yeah. I mean, the tokenization, I'd say, is the, the, the technical distinct, the technical you know, way that we would accomplish that. So you'd say, hey, you know, a token in this form is is a technical representation of I own something. So a okay. Bitcoin is a token. A you know, a piece of real estate could be represented as a token. And, and so on, on the panel you were just on, Amy Erickson was leading the panel. She was yeah. the, the coordinator. And she was talking about how it's really no different than being a limited partnership, being part of a limited partnership, or owning shares in a REIT. And maybe let's expand a little bit just to kind of explain what that you what you really mean by this tokenization or fractional ownership. Yeah, I mean, it's the same, you know, people people are very familiar with what it means to invest in the stock market. I buy a percentage of ownership in a company, whether you think about it that way or not, that's effectively what you're doing. And you earn with it the rights associated with ownership in that company, which might be dividends, it might be voting, it might be whatever. That's never translated directly to the real estate market. It's translated in the way that, you know, we've built corporate structures that hold real estate assets, and then I can own a share or a unit of that corporate structure. So that would be uh, real estate investment trusts or just corporate entities where I can own a stock and they happen to own a lot of real estate. But directly down to the piece of real estate, you know, I want to own 1% of this address or this plot of land. You know, that's a layer that I think tokenization using the blockchain and the concepts of cryptocurrency to bring liquidity to these markets so that you can start to gather, you know, capital and investment and actually have exit strategies that are very different, you know, that would be akin to selling stock on a secondary market. Could I sell my position in a real estate portfolio easily if it weren't held through a REIT? And today there's a lot of friction in buying and selling real estate for the average person because we don't have those types of mechanisms in place. So we take the similar concepts and just boil it down to if you wanted to a home level or a small investment level and allow people to a new funding mechanism for the equity portion of real estate. Yeah, exactly. And you can think of it like, you know, a Kickstarter to fund your home. You know, why would somebody give you money to fund your home? Because maybe they get, they get a percentage of the revenues that you're earning off your basement suite, or they get to own a percentage of the equity when you decide to resell it in 10 years. But more interestingly is the fact that if I own a piece of that property, there's a market in which I could sell it. Then all of a sudden it becomes a very fungible asset that's backed by a physical good, right? A piece of real estate. And would this require the real estate industry and regulatory bodies to adopt 
blockchain as the primary vehicle for tracking ownership of I mean title registry yes and no I think I think there's like there's steps that will get us closer some steps that are going to be feasible without regulatory changes and some steps that are going to be require complete overhauls of how the system works you know contract law allows people to enter into contracts in multiple forms whether that's like on paper or through verbal commitment or some sort of voice recording we end up on a certain type of approach when we do contracts, we all end up using very similar templated contracts to buy and sell real estate, but doesn't mean that I couldn't agree with a seller that, hey, for the purpose of our transaction, we're going to represent ownership with this new thing, call it a token. Uh, and because we've both agreed, we might even write a contract to the, to the effect that we agreed that the token now represents the deed in the house. Now, if I move that token around, then effectively I'm moving the ownership of the house around. And, you, and that's, that's separate from title registry. So as far if I pulled title, I would only see the one owner, not anybody yeah. else. So this would be a sort of a subcontract. Yeah, and I, and I think that's where, where where it gets more interesting is when you start getting into like title registry. Again, Ontario is probably the worst place to use it as an example because we have a very efficient title registry system because it's you know it's a very well coordinated database powered by Terranet that manages all real estate transactions in Ontario, with some exceptions and some edge cases. So in theory, though, if I buy a token or would I, if I buy a token of your property, does that make sense if yep, I say this? Yep, if I buy sure. a token Aaron's going to butcher this. <laughs> yeah, I already have. <laughs> if I buy a token of your property, I could not, couldn't I have, isn't there some kind of registration, like a notice of interest or something I could register on title that would give me that comfort? Because I mean, that's where, I mean, maybe my, I've got an old real estate brain, so to speak, but that's where I would think, well, oh yeah, that's great. I've got this token, but tomorrow you turn around and sell the property. I don't even know about it yeah. because I've got no way of finding out. And you walk away with well, the full that's, that, that would be the risk, right? And th- so, these are kind of like layers of IOUs that are just technically interesting. But you know, if, if I if I say, hey, I'm going to hold on to this asset for you, but I owe it to you, you don't know if I go on and sell it, right? right. So that's where I think eventually it's going to have to get directly integrated into how we do title registry right. and how that entire system is. Which processed. is, and I've not thought about this before because before I'd always had in my mind that the title registry had to be a blockchain, so to speak, and that's where the transactions were being managed and and independently verified. But it could just be that the registry exists as it does today, but there is a, they've created a type of registration for this tokenization of of a house or property or whatever. You know, and that's probably the way it'll play out in most developed markets. But we are seeing there's a couple of states in the US that are in active pilot projects to create blockchain based land registry. Yeah, Abhishek Abhishek had said that he's working with countries that are, that have basically have no title registry. Yeah, and generally the countries that are more likely to do it, as you said, are the ones that have no legacy infrastructure. So there's starting from scratch. And that's always the best way to build new technology is when you don't have a legacy system to replace. When you do, then you have to start thinking about like, what's the hybrid kind of intermediary steps to get there. Yeah, but a one day flicking a light switch, yeah. total change. Yeah, Which exactly. Monday morning exactly. is going to cause Well, I was headache. just talking earlier today with, uh, you know, somebody in the commercial real estate kind of sales side of the industry. And I think the challenge is you have, you have a lot of vested interest in the way the system currently works, right? So it's not as simple as providing a technical solution and waiting for everybody to adopt it. Because along the way, you're probably cutting somebody's margin or killing somebody's business because there's an inefficiency that they monetize, right? And technology generally replaces inefficiencies. And so that might be that there's a complete layer of real estate transactions that disappears after you build this Yeah, when we were playing the blue sky concept. And Amy Erickson was the one that kind of, I think, mentioned this on one of the times that she's been on the podcast. But you do have the title registry as a blockchain and you have the smart contracts layered on top of that about the agreements between vendor and purchaser. You actually don't need, you don't need lawyers. You don't need 
funding institutions within banks. It's literally, I've come to an agreement, purchaser and vendor, on a day that you push the button, my money comes from me to you after I've satisfied the smart contract. And it cuts out, you know, 80 to 90% of the infrastructure that we have today to do a transaction between two parties. So to your point, I think we're going to be very resistant. We, the royal we of the real estate industry, can be very resistant at large to something like that that'll just... You know, I, I think totally yes. overturn the way that a transaction might might function. I think that's right, but I, I think it'll be replaced with like completely new opportunities for new sure. capital creation, right? So it'll just mean that the industry needs to adjust. And as as with any industry that goes through like a massive technology overhaul, the real estate industry, for whatever reason, seems to be one of the most stubborn to adopting new technology, <laughs> uh, which is a common trend when you think of, when you talk about you know companies in the prop tech side of the industry. Especially but, on the commercial side, too, for some absolutely. reason, even slower than residential. Well, I, I mean, I'll, I will guess that's because it's really not like retail, right? It's not to market. It's not to the masses. It's a small group of, you know, large landowners that are, you know, often family generations. And it's not like, you know, let's come up with the fastest, coolest technology. I'm going to go sell a million of these things, right? It does, just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But you look at, you know, you, the small cap companies that go and raise money through something like the Toronto Stock Exchange Ventures Market, there's a new avenue to raise capital for, you know, business initiative that didn't exist 50 years ago in the real estate sp- space. If you want to go start a new project, you know, the paths that you have to raise capital are going to be generally one-to-one investor conversations, especially if you're just getting into the commercial real estate market, which, you know, many people get in, you know, they want to build like their first like five unit townhouse complex or something like that, right? You got to go find that rich guy who believes in you, who's willing to write you a check and take a piece of equity in your company it's not too far of a stretch to imagine that I might be able to raise capital for a project like that, the same way that I might go raise capital on the public market if this were a stock-based company. Just the efficiencies aren't there today. So that's where I'd say fractional ownership is going to start to change how people assemble money for real estate projects. Well, even we just uh, recently recorded an episode with Peter Politis of Graybrook. And so his investor pools was 7,000 people strong, but just to qualify for that, you have to be an accredited investor, minimum yeah. investments, 25K. And that is, by real estate standards, a pretty low barrier of entry, but still exclude a humongous chunk of the population that might otherwise want to invest in it. Yeah. And, and you know, living in Toronto, everybody knows about housing affordability as an issue. And I think what's been missing in the conversation is that it's not even about how do I get access to housing to live in, but it's how do I get access to housing as an investment option? I mean, if I can't buy a full house or I can't buy a full condo or, you know, 20% down payment, whatever it is, then I'm, I'm just excluded from this market. I can't get exposure. There's no efficient way for me to get exposure to the market. And so I think the idea that, hey, I'm a young millennial who maybe doesn't have $200,000 to put as a down payment on a house, but maybe I have $15,000 that I'd like to expose myself into real estate, this is going to be a completely new vehicle for me to diversify, you know, the types of investments that I have. I'm going to throw you a curveball. That's okay. Sure. So Matthew Spoke, who's here right now, is the brother of Chris Spoke, who was a previous guest. First time we've had siblings. First time we've had any <laughs> relations on. If you remember Chris, for those that are, are regular listeners, it was the YIMBY, the Yes in My Backyard uh, Housing Matters episode. It was my favorite episode. I'm pretty sure it was Adam's as well that we've done. No offense to anybody else, but it was just it was very fascinating, his, his approach. So your brothers, I'm sure you talk about it all the time. How does blockchain and and sort of zoning changes and, and that, those two worlds, because you remember, if, for those that have listened to it, your brother was really kind of focused on, you know, the problems with zoning and how that's having a huge impact on affordability. And have you guys discussed ways that your two worlds could collide? I mean, in theory, yes. I think there's a lot of like really interesting overlaps. I look at the blockchain like really long term as like the technology that is the great equalizer that makes capital markets available, that kind of reduces barriers to entry and makes everybody kind of exist on a level playing field, which 
most markets today, that's complete opposite, you know? And so I think that's very true in real estate, but particularly true when you start looking outside of a single market and you say, well, I want exposure across borders in different real estate markets to start, you know, finding arbitrage opportunities to say, I want to invest in real estate. You know, maybe now is a great time to be buying Venezuelan real estate, shy of the government maybe repossessing it from me. You know, being able to like extend myself into other markets is in very inefficient and difficult today and generally leads to nobody does it, you know, right. unless you're like a large scale institution, like a pension fund who can buy massive pieces of infrastructure. So, you're, and so really, if I translate that, you're saying if the, if the way in which municipalities, province, provinces, jurisdictions you know, have their titles structured using sort of a commonality of a, of a technology being a blockchain. It allows you to more easily access different markets because yeah. it's a similar similarity in the way that the properties are zoned and, and sold and traded yeah. and the case more liquidity. Yeah, it's like know. standardizing the way that you represent these ownership, these, these like essentially proofs of ownership. I think the problem in Toronto is not a technology problem. The problem in Toronto that you, you were referring to in the, that episode with Chris is regulation and bylaws. And, you know, there may be a future state where blockchains and fractional ownership through tokenization matter here. But I think, you know, we're less likely to see it in like well-established Western countries in the short term. We're more likely to see it elsewhere where there's more of a blank slate, where there is no legacy to replace. You're just kind of designing a new system from scratch. If you were to make a prediction for our market and we promise we won't bring it up five years from now. But, uh, <laughs> no, we absolutely what, will. When, when do you think we would see, a not, you know, as we referred to earlier, a complete adoption of the new technology, but say a viable, somewhat common option of executing the real estate? When do you see that? Uh, well, I mean, there's already like examples today. I, I don't know if anybody from the, uh, the central government in China listens to your podcast, but there are absolutely examples. I'm sure of, they do. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, but <laughs> there are absolutely examples of, of money leaving China through cryptocurrency to invest in North American and Canadian real estate. And I know there are companies being built specifically to address that channel where there's an opportunity to raise capital as a developer in North America And there's available capital in countries like China that is locked behind currency controls and where cryptocurrency becomes like the exit path, essentially. And it's offering a new option for a real estate developer in, let's say, Vancouver and Toronto to raise capital. And it's providing an interesting kind of social out to that investor sitting in China. So that might not be, you know, the most large scale mainstream use case that can, that most people can relate to. But I think we have seen that happen already where Bitcoin has been used as the vehicle to move Chinese money into Canadian real estate. But every, by, by design, it would be under the radar. Under, every, I, I would say under the, under the, the radar of China, government. ideally you can build these systems where, you know, that doesn't negate the legality of doing that in Canada. Because from the Canadian yeah. perspective, there's money coming into the country, it has to get converted and put into a bank account, and then it kind of falls into the same yeah. cycle. I was going to say, every chief American, every Camlos, so the chief anti-money laundering officers of every major financial institution just cringed listening to you talk about <laughs> I, that. I believe it, yeah. <laughs> I, I do that a lot. <laughs> How about smart contracts? We've kind of talked about that a little bit, but do you yeah. want to just kind of explain what that technology looks like and how it's being used today? Yeah, well, smart contracts is essentially the layer of, call it logic, that sits on top of a blockchain. So the layer of logic meaning I want to take, let's use that fractional ownership in a house example. All of a sudden I have, you know, 100% ownership in a house, but I decide to sell 1% to 100 owners. And I want that reflected in such a way that when rent gets paid to the house, it automatically gets distributed fractionally to all those owners. That's the type of logic that you could build into a smart contract. So you imagine that there's a piece of software that represents 
the house and I pay my rent to it. And that software distributes it proportionally to all of the co-owners automatically and through kind of a form of cryptocurrency kind of funneling through that, that smart contract. So it just makes the use cases kind of interesting. You can start to automate a lot of the logic that would normally be, you know, the domain of lawyers and, and accountants and bankers to sort out where there's a lot of manual kind of process there. So is that the kind of thing that Aon might get into in the future? Because you've got this blockchain with all these independent computers and correct me with the lingo, right? But you've got all these sort of people that could independently verify that that contract is being upheld because as I'm receiving the rent, I am upholding my component, my part of the contract and distributing the money. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, where we fit in this ecosystem is that we're building the enabling technology. We build the mechanism for smart contracts, but then it's app developers and companies like these companies that I mentioned that are doing like real estate financing through China, they would come and sort of build an app that builds a very specific smart contract for that purpose. So yeah, it's absolutely something that could be enabled uh, on top of Aon. And what, uh, what aspect of, we'll call it real estate, do you see has the least barrier for widespread implementation of these technologies? Probably in the, you know, I've gone through this myself once and remembered how painful it was. And I know this company's kind of like working on this, which is just the back and forth paperwork that is required in a normal purchase or sale of a property and how broken it is and how much of like a broken telephone process there is between you and your broker and the seller's broker and the seller and, you know, the bank who's financing the transaction. There's so many counterparties involved in a relatively simple transaction. And today, a lot of that happens extremely manually where you're literally printing and signing and scanning and faxing and whatever. We're seeing a lot of use cases getting built around like this multi-party process where you need to know that, hey, there's six parties to this transaction, let's say, for example, so the buyer and its broker and the seller and its broker and the bank and whoever else. I'm not a real estate expert. And I need to know that every one of them has done kind of their part in the steps, you know, the steps that have to happen before the transaction is confirmed and before the money's released or, or the, the, you know, the deed to the house is transferred. I think there's a very, very obvious use case around building that in such a way where it's completely digital, completely automated. We're using the blockchain as essentially a notary service. Amy referred to this when we were on stage earlier today. The blockchain becomes a really powerful notary service where instead of going to like some trusted notary to sign a document or stamp it, yeah, you look at the blockchain as like a mechanism to prove that yes, in fact, party A did do the action they were supposed to before it got passed on to party B. And the blockchain becomes kind of a, a powerful notary to provide confidence to the transaction. Rather than emails with attachments flying around all directions. Exactly. Yeah. When we had the off air, we talked about this. It's, it takes eight hours, right? From yeah. the money to go from one account all the way to the purchase. Or well, the worse yet, even when you're, when you're dealing with like little amendments to closing periods and you get a scan back that's got your old initials crossed out and you got to initial beside the crossed out initials. And, you know, that's pretty common today in the, in Canadian real estate. And I think it's, you know, hugely ready for (laughs) software to step in and disrupt. So my my jaw hit the floor the first time I saw an agreement purchase a sale that had gone back five or six times. You can't read it. Oh, you can't read it. It's it's illegible. It's a fact. It's still 2019. These things are still getting faxed back and forth (laughs) between real estate agents. (laughs) And this is the, this is the basis for like $5 million exchanging hands. uh, (laughs) Well, I mean, then using facts, we talked about this. What do you call it? The facts problem? problem because that is the issue is that okay fine you need to have all of these people engaged on this one technology the blockchain but how do you get them all on there right like you said you got one guy with a fax machine is useless right yeah nobody on the other end to receive yeah this is you know general generally a network effect problem and i think we're getting there it takes time to to develop enough kind of traction for really this to tip into like mainstream technology but you know we're already at at numbers that most people 
you know, would probably be unaware of. There are tens of millions of active users of blockchain technology around the world. They just don't generate enough of like a concentration in any one place to make a difference on how we transact on a daily basis. Because if it's less than like 0.5% of the people in Toronto, it's not enough for merchants to build their point of sale systems to accept current cryptocurrency, things like that. So we need to get to a, a larger tipping point to say, hey, this becomes so commonplace that it's the same reason that you would you know, by default have to build your business process with like an internet interface where I need to be able to access this through a website or log into a, you know, some sort of app. That's like a no brainer today. I think we're probably 10 years away from that in the blockchain industry, maybe less for some use cases, but yeah, it takes a, takes a large network to make this really feasible. You're talking a 10 year time horizons. Obviously, if you were to look back 10 years prior to now and made predictions, a lot of them would be wrong. Yeah. Um, but what do you see in the longer term scale for the te- you know, technologies you're involved in? If you were to make some you know, science fiction predictions, uh, you know, where would where you see the world headed, at least in a real estate context? Yeah, I mean, in the real estate context, I think some of the more interesting stuff has to do with how blockchains and you know, the ability to kind of tokenize ownership starts to impact not only physical markets, but virtual markets. And I think, you know, Maybe the audience is not all that familiar with with movies like Ready Player One, where you're like living inside this virtual reality. But today, you'll you'll see very very commonly people are familiar because of their kids. They're familiar with games like Fortnite and PUBG and Anthem. These are like massive gaming worlds, if you can think of them that way, where you log into this world and you have a character and you're playing a game of some form. There's land in that world, and that land today we don't think of real estate because the world can be replicated. But blockchains, if anything, create this concept that we refer to as digital scarcity. And real estate is essentially value-driven because of its scarcity. And so- Bitcoin is forced scarcity, essentially. Forced scarcity. So it's programmatic scarcity that you can build into digital things. So, you know, you can imagine, and there's companies already working on this. One that I, I referenced earlier today was a company called Decentraland that is selling plots of digital land. And people are bidding and having live auctions on plots of digital land because they think that this will be the basis to create a new virtual gaming world where the land will inherently start to create value because I can sell advertising in the game. I can sell access to building your little fort on my land inside the game. And, you know, these currencies are non-fungible today, but you look at like the credits that power a lot of games like World of Warcraft and, and Fortnite, these are valuable currencies in the hands of a bunch of teenagers. Those teenagers are 10 years away from being the workforce, right? And so if I think 10 years out, it's not, crazy to me to think that part of my real estate portfolio is going to be digital real estate. And I'm going to own some piece of the, the world of Warcraft's like land. You know, I, I, maybe it won't be the world of Warcraft by then. It might be some new game that's replaced it. And I'll see value in investing in that as like a part of a diversified portfolio. My son does play Fortnite. I may pay a little more attention to it now that there's be money involved. <laughs> Ooh, in look it. at yeah. that castle. I want to own that. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> It is it is a, a mind bending concept to think of you know where we are today, but the world moves at such a rapid pace. It uh, you know very well could be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People may have noticed that the background noise has gotten considerably louder here at the uh, the Real Capital Conference today. I guess we're at the near the end now. People have come out. Is there any uh, you know ending thoughts you want to leave anybody with about you know the bright shiny future of uh, where we're all headed, or is it uh, or about your business, or what do you see? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say generally outside of the real estate industry, you know, blockchain technology is a trend, absolutely worth following. I think it's very easy to get you know, to get jaded by, by negative headlines and to see kind of one or two bad announcements that lead people to kind of assume certain things. 
But, you know, there's a very bright future ahead for this technology. I think the way it's going to impact the real estate market is probably unforeseen to people, including us working in the industry. Because when you start trying to guess it, use cases 10 years out, you're almost certainly going to be wrong. Back to your um, internet example, nobody back then was thinking of Google and Facebook. Or Netflix and for that Netflix, matter, right? Yeah, and, and Amazon. Like it's, yeah, new technologies have this really like incredible enabling characteristic of inventing industries that we never knew could exist, right? And, and I think we're going to see that happen you know, over the course of the next decade. And so keep an open mind. You know, this is already becoming a technology that is quite familiar to like the millennial generation and, and growing. And so, you know, I, I hope that people will look at this as, as an opportunity to think about how to, you know, modernize and change real estate businesses, both in commercial real estate as well as residential. I mean, I speak personally about this because we've done this in the context of my family. We have financed real estate transactions with cryptocurrency, and I'm probably an anomaly because I work in this industry, but I don't think I'll be an anomaly 10 years from now. You're the tip of the spear right now, yeah. though. I love it. Cool. <laughs> I, have to, I have one last question. I hate to hope, hopefully this is not a negative end, but I, I need to ask it only because it is one of those things that you do read about. Sure. Um, the energy suck, the environmental impact that this technology has, and it is not clean for that, for lack of a better term. So... And just for, for context, when you've got this much computer power, computing power needed to run these blockchains, and of course, they're based on what we're discussing today, they're going to proliferate at, at some, some extreme exponent. So that means just hundreds of millions of more square feet of these, these computers just sucking energy. So how do you, how do you combat that? What's the, what's the argument against yeah. that? Or is that just a reality of this technology? I, I, again, I think it's, there's a trade-off there that you have to be able to evaluate yourself if it's worth it. But there are also changes in the technology that you know, Bitcoin, a lot of what you're referring to is, is around the design of Bitcoin. This concept of computing power at large scales is what secures the network. There are other types of approaches that people are experimenting with and researching to say, hey, is there another way to secure the network that doesn't require as much energy consumption? But even in the case of Bitcoin, I think it's really a matter of like doing an analysis on cost benefit. Is it worth it? You know, what people have a hard time pointing to, because I don't think this data would be easy to pull together, is, you know, what's the the carbon footprint of running the global banking industry. There's no real way to measure that, but I'm sure it's probably not insignificant. And so that's where I kind of like try to balance it off. It, it, this is significantly easier to point to. So Bitcoin aside, let's say, let's pretend Bitcoin just ceased to exist. You know, how many computers are needed to run Aeon's blockchain technology? And is there a finite number or is it the more the merrier or, or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, it's the more the merrier because the security of these systems is essentially built around how decentralized and how distributed the system is. But the mechanism of like what their computer is required to do and how energy consuming that is, is really a matter of like how we design our system. So, so it's different than mining for Bitcoins, which is what takes up all of this. Well, giant and then for context, today on Aeon, people mine. But in a year from now, we're working on a new form of an alternative security mechanism that is not mining, it's something else that will change a lot of the economics around like the energy consumption behind these systems. So I, I think that trend will kind of solve itself over time. We haven't even mentioned quantum computing, but I guess that's the solution, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> leave it there. We just end there. Just leave it open. Well, now you have to have a follow-on episode about quantum computing and it's Are you an expert real in that also? No, but I'm sure I could find you somebody. <laughs> I'm sure Amy Erickson is. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> well, great. Thanks very much, Matthew. That was, that was a great conversation. Where can, a, where can they find Aon, a website that the people can go and check? Yeah, two websites. I mean, the Aon Foundation is at aon.org and more about our technology at aon.network. 
Great. And um, we'll put those links in the show notes for everybody that they can follow. Again, thank you. Thank you to First National for sponsoring the, the podcast. Thank you to RealPack and Informa for, for allowing us to, to come and join and start this commercial real estate forum series. And thanks to Adam for the co-hosting. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.